This episode of Tester's Island Discs is sponsored by TestRail, a modern web-based test management tool which allows you to manage all of your testing efforts in a centralized location. To learn more about TestRail and to find out how you can sign up for a free trial, visit www.testrail.com or see the details in the show description. Welcome to Tester's Island Discs, your most musical guide to the world of software testing. My name's Neil Studd, and I'll be your castaway companion. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Tester's Island Discs, the podcast where each fortnight I interview a person from the world of software testing and talk to them about their life story, their career story, and also the music that they like. And today's special guest is Amber Race. Amber is from Seattle in Washington, where she's currently a senior estet for Big Fish Games, producing games and apps for desktop, PC, Mac and mobile. And Amber's recently returned from Star East, where she was giving a workshop called Ready for the Big Time, which was an introduction to loaded performance testing. Welcome to the podcast, Amber. Hi, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Anyone from overseas is always uh, a joy, not least because it creates interesting scheduling things. So it's it's late <laughs> night in the UK here. It's your lunch break at the moment. So yes. uh, thanks for taking the time. Oh, no problem. It's my pleasure. So perhaps you could start off by telling our listeners how you first got into testing. Okay, well, I majored in Asian studies and I taught English in Japan for three years after graduating from college. Uh, And then I returned to Seattle and uh, did several sort of dead-end jobs in the admin field. And then I had a friend who got a job as a contract tester at Microsoft, which was up and coming then in the early 90s, late 90s, I should say. So I decided, well, I'm smart and I can use a computer. So I, sure, I could sign up for these contract positions. So I ended up, uh, because of my Japanese language skills, being hired into the handwriting recognition group, uh, mm. where I eventually became a tester and then learned on the job how to code and became an estet. And then since 2008, I've been working at Big Fish Games. So that's the short version of the story. It was all my plan from the beginning to major <laughs> in <Asian> studies. <laughs> Yeah, people often talk about how they fell into testing, but yeah, it's funny how these little these little hooks then get you in. So it was actually the Asian yes. studies that got you the gig in the end. So yeah, Absolutely. it's funny how these things work out. Yeah. Now you were sharing the same stage as me at Test Bash Philadelphia at the end of last year, and you were talking about yes. crossing over, about what happened when you moved from testing to developing a feature. And I believe you've just announced that you'll actually be bringing that talk to Europe later this year. Yes, uh, I've been fortunate to be able to bring the talk to Agile Test Days uh, in Potsdam. So I'm really looking forward to that. Hmm. So the program's only just announced. Obviously, it's one of these multi-track conferences that there's lots to choose from. If you have the chance to give a quick pitch for your talk, get in there early. Uh, what could people expect to hear about in that talk? Well, I'm basically going to talk about uh, my experience developing a feature for a game and how it made me uh, realize the importance of having a test role and a developer role working together, and that I really preferred the tester role. And so a lot of that is about learning your own identity, what it is that makes you tick, and kind of owning the role, I guess. Um, how important do you think it is for, I mean, we, we spend a lot of time talking about how testers and developers should all be responsible for quality, but how important is it for testers to still sort of take ownership as such of the test role? I think it's really important. I mean, basically the entire time I've been in test, there's been uh, a lot of angst about uh, what do testers bring to the process and is test a role that's going to survive and uh, are we all going to lose our jobs to machines or whatever? So I think that there isn't a whole lot of confidence or there hasn't been historically in testing as a valuable role. And it's really important for testers to own that role and to understand the value that they're bringing and really communicate that value to the rest of the team because it is important. 
Mm. Yeah, I've yet to see any evidence that there will be less need for testers in the future. I think there will be more need for more highly skilled testers. And I think if people want to take ownership and become more professional, more knowledgeable testers, that can only be a good thing. Yes. And so a lot of that is about having the kind of the the confidence and the swagger to, to say, hey, you know, I, I actually do know what I'm talking about here. You know, I, I am the test expert in air quotes. <laughs> That can be a difficult thing for people to to do sometimes, particularly if they're a bit insular or they, they don't like, you know, standing up to authority or, you know, putting their foot down and saying, no, no, I mean this, I'm, I'm the expert. Yeah, I think it is difficult, especially if you're in a position where maybe you don't know as much about coding as the developers or the intricate details of the project. Uh, Angie Jones gave a really good keynote at Star East that touched on this, how she was testing a machine learning algorithm. And what I really liked about it is that she wasn't intimidated by the fact that she didn't understand all the intricate math of machine learning. She's like, I know what this algorithm is supposed to do in the end, and I can test that. And I think that we can all take that attitude into our testing. Testers often have a more clear view of how the whole system is supposed to work from end to end, and we can bring that knowledge in to bring value to the whole process. Yeah, so much of what we do is about actually bridging communication gaps within the teams. And we are kind of that linchpin of people who have a level of technical understanding that goes beyond what, Mm -hmm. say, the BAs might have, who have a level of overall vision of the system that individual developers might not have if they're working on their own little piece of the system. And yeah, I think there is a role to be had that is a linchpin to the team that is not going to go away anytime soon. And and don't apologize for it. You just, Mm -hmm. you got to, you got to take it and you run with it. And actually, that kind of attitude takes us very nicely into your first song choice. Can you tell us what you picked and why? Uh, Yes, I uh, picked Bad Girls by M.I.A. Uh, I've loved M.I.A. ever since I saw her, I think it was back in 2009, on her delivery date performing at the MTV Video Awards. So, And she's like, yeah, I'm pregnant. I could give birth at any time, and I don't (laughs) care. I'm going to knock your socks off. So... Uh, I really enjoy her music and her attitude and, uh, you know, she's sexy and great. And it's sort of my own internal entry music, this particular song. I'm not sure how well it connects to me personally, since I'm not a girl (laughs) anymore, but uh, I like the song anyway. That was Bad Girls by MIA, Amber's own entry music. Now, Amber, you've had a quite colourful career so far, going through various roles. Who are some of the people who've influenced you along the way? Well, I think uh, my most basic influences would definitely be my parents. My mother especially was a mainframe systems programmer throughout her entire career and during my growing up in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, so this idea that women in tech is something... Uh, strange and weird. I absolutely never thought that because that's what my mom did for a living. And uh, my father too was also very into personal computers. And we had a personal computer in the house back in 1979, which ran off a tape deck. So because of that, I've always been comfortable with technology, even though in a bit of 
teenage rebellion, I decided not to major in any kind of computer science, but to major in Asian studies instead. Yeah, it's very interesting that you have kind of a familial connection to technology there. And I guess that kind of tight bond can help create an empathic connection to what you're working with. That level of empathy can be harder to find in the workplace where you're sometimes you're in a distributed team or you've got physical partitions between parts of your team. How important do you think it is to have kind of a level of empathy within your team? Well, it's absolutely important. Not only as a tester are we supposed to have empathy for the end users of our product Mm. and making sure that it's working for them, but working with developers especially, I think it's important to understand what they're having to do when they're creating the, the software that we're working on and the structures that everybody else is working with. I mean, I think the more you can understand where people are coming from, the better you can communicate with them, and then it's easier to get issues fixed. If people aren't feeling defensive or like you don't understand them, uh, it's always better to have empathy for all the people you're working with. I think a lot of the time, particularly with that dev test relationship, uh, testers can be accused of being overly critical. I think perhaps we need to take back the actual meaning of the word critical, which uh, without looking at a dictionary definition is to talk about, to analyze something in detail and to identify problems with it and bring them sure. into the limelight. And, that, and there is yeah. nothing fundamentally wrong with that. It's how you communicate that message that matters. Absolutely. I mean, people, the, the, standard is that testers are supposed to tell you your baby's ugly, but nobody wants to hear that. I mean, what testers are really supposed to tell you, you have spinach in your teeth before you go on stage, things like that. The stuff that's going to help you that you want to know. And I see some of that level of criticism, sort of the harsher criticisms within the industry as well, Uh, particularly if you're looking on somewhere like Twitter, or I know sometimes when I dive into Reddit occasionally, I'll just bang my head against a wall. Oh, man. Uh, You you see just topics coming around, like people talking about, oh, I'm a manual tester. How do I become an automated tester kind of thing? And I understand that this is a, a concern that people have based on a level of understanding that might be out of touch with reality. Where do you stand on the whole manual versus automation thing? I, I, I actually really dislike the entire manual versus automation thinking mm. in an entirety. Like these are things that are in conflict with each other. There's a way of interacting with an application like a human being would, which is very valuable. And then you can be testing at a slightly deeper level kind of thinking more how the computers are working and that's where the automation comes in. But there's this idea that you're either doing exploratory testing or you're automating. And my own experience is that when I'm writing automated tests, that's a form of exploratory testing. I'm exploring the API instead of the user interface, but I'm still exploring. So I think there's all sorts of crossover. When does something go from manual to automation? If you're writing a script, is it automated now? If you're using a tool, is it automated now? So I think the whole Mm -hmm. manual versus automation thinking is not particularly helpful. Yeah, we've had Richard Bradshaw on the podcast in the past, and I can't remember whether we actually got into discussion about this at the time, but he came up with this idea of a thing called automation in testing, which is where you are automating a task or a piece of your work that would be otherwise just unnecessarily time-consuming or boring or mundane for a tester to do. It's like mm-hmm. the two things should work in harmony. Yes. And this and this idea that we have to be pitted against each other, like the automators are going to push out the, the manual testers or blah, blah, blah. It's just, um, I don't think it's helpful for the industry at all. No, not at all. Let's move on to something that's a lot more palatable, which is your second song choice. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I chose... Bob Dylan like a Rolling Stone. And I think it actually fits very well into the manual versus automation talk because this is when Bob Dylan came out with this song, it was using electric guitars and before he'd been a total folk singer and people were aghast. Oh my God, how can Bob Dylan be betraying the movement by using electric guitars? And Bob Dylan didn't care. He's like, this is how I'm moving my art forward and y'all can just deal with it. 
And uh, of course, Bob Dylan is also my one of my mother's favorite artists. So I grew up with it and this is a great song. You say you never compromise with a mystery tramp, but now you was the first appearance on Tessa's Island Discs for Bob Dylan, Like a Rolling Stone. Now, Amber, you grew up in Seattle and you've mentioned Microsoft already, Seattle being quite a hotbed for technology. Uh, Amazon's head office is over there. Uh, Nintendo of America are based in Redmond as well. So is there quite a burgeoning tech community in Seattle? Well, it's interesting because, uh, of course, there's thousands of people that are employed by the tech industry, both at Microsoft and at Amazon and uh, all the other smaller companies that grow up around those. But as far as like the community, it doesn't seem to be as active as maybe it could be. I know uh, Alan Page was on here before talking about maybe somebody should start something up and maybe somebody should start something up. Not that I'm raising my hand. <laughs> I guess with, with organize, when you have a, a small number of large organizations, they will have generally quite mature internal communities. And the challenge is yes. to take that and open up to the outside and understand that actually, um, you know, you're not giving away industry secrets, you know, necessarily, you know, yes. it's important that the industry as a whole improves. I've been at meetups, I shan't name check any, but they've been, I've been to local meetups where the local meetup is basically just an, an open pit for recruiters to, to come and poach people from each other's companies. And so people stay away. That's my feeling too about the mm. local meetup community. Mm. But if I'm missing out on something great, somebody please tell me because I'd love <laughs> to know. So with you being based in Seattle, Amazon and Microsoft on your doorstep, I guess you get to see a lot of the innovations up front before the rest of the world sees them. I know Amazon, for example, started doing pop-up shops a while ago. How much do you see the influence of technology on society spreading at the moment? Well, yeah, Seattle is ground zero or ground 0.1, I suppose you could say, for a lot of this stuff. Just the impact of the tech community on the overall community, it's really been quite dramatic in the last five to 10 years, especially in Seattle with Amazon taking over the downtown and everything getting exponentially more expensive and sort of this, I mean, I could go on and on about the politics of it, but that's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> and also, like you mentioned, a lot of the uh, Amazon Go services or these convenience stores where you can walk in and walk out with your stuff and you never, ever have to speak with another human being. And isn't that great? That sort of thing is also being rolled out in places like Seattle. So it's interesting. I'm noticing there's been quite a lot of pushback recently. I mean, there was the whole delete Facebook campaign, which, you know, there's always a reason why one of these campaigns kicks off. It was the whole Cambridge Analytica business this time. But people seem to be more cautious of these giant conglomerate services and they kind of want to get back to a more personable service, I think. Yeah, I I do think that um, there's been sort of a, a watershed moment where people realize that it's not all sunny and nice over here on the tech side, that there's a there's definitely a shadow as well and a dark side. 
especially when people feel like they're being more divided by the technology when it's supposed to be bringing people together. I mean, I know from my own Facebook involvement, I mean, I haven't deleted Facebook, but I've cut back a lot just because it was it was more of a source of negativity for me. And I just didn't need any more of that in my life. And people are generally being more aware of what organizations are collecting about them. Uh, I know there was a blog post that Cassandra Lung did recently about where she downloaded all of Facebook's data that they held on her and she started pouring through it and going, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know they had that or, oh, that makes sense they had that. And just the fact that people are thinking about what they do with their data is in this world a, a very useful thing to do. Absolutely. Now, you submitted your entry into Test Island Discs um, before Test Bash Philadelphia, I think. So you've been in the yes. queue for a little while. And one of the notes you made on your possible talking points was a sentence that said, the joy of screaming into the abyss. <laughs> now, what was that referring to? And how's that passed in the last six months? <laughs> well, yeah, that was that was interesting. I mean, there is a joy in screaming into the abyss, otherwise known as my car when I'm listening to music <laughs> very loudly. I, I'm not quite sure what my mindset was at the moment. I was a little surprised when I saw that. But when I thought about it, I was like, yeah, sure. I mean, it's better than jumping into the abyss, right? Yeah, you get to find out how deep it is. And yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> I'll just scream and stay out of the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a certain amount of that screaming in your next song selection. Yes, yeah, so um, my next song selection is Soundgarden, Slaves and Bulldozers. Uh, Soundgarden being a quintessential Seattle band. They, I was living here when the grunge movement was new in the early 90s, and I, Soundgarden is one of my favorite bands, and Bad Motorfinger is one of my favorite albums that I listen to all the time in Japan when I was living in Japan to remind me of my home. And there's nobody screams into the abyss better than Chris Cornell and... Chris Cornell is definitely one of the greatest voices in rock music, and I love screaming along with this song. That was Soundgarden with Slaves and Bulldozers. Now, Amber, in moving between the different roles, so you've, you've been on the dev side and the test side, and you've worked and interacted with different disciplines. How much has that given you an appreciation for the need for teamwork across different disciplines? Yeah, well, absolutely. Teamwork is, is vital. And even, I mean, we talk about agile teamwork, but even when I was at Microsoft before agile was a thing, I mean, we still worked very closely together as a team. And I think the important thing when you're, doing this agile teamwork or any kind of teamwork is that people are working with each other as equals and not putting one role above the other because everybody has a different thing to contribute and it's all working together to make the software the best it could be. 
Yeah, the team gets to play to their strengths. Everyone has their own particular specialities. And working together as a team towards a common goal uh, is a really good way of working. And speaking of goals, um, with the industry moving at the rate it is and the, the need to kind of upskill or at least keep your skills up to a certain level, how hard is it to set aspirational goals without kind of overstretching yourself? I think it's hard. <laughs> I, I mean, if you're setting an aspirational goal, you're sort of by definition stretching yourself a little bit. And mm. I think the important thing is to realize that if you don't, even if you don't realize the goal in its entirety, even the act of trying to reach that goal is going to help you improve your skill set, even if you didn't get all the way. So when I need to learn something new, I either I find a reason to do it at work or I say I'm going to do a talk about it at a conference and then I have to learn about it. So <laughs> those are my yeah, two methods to, to stretch myself mm. um, in learning new things. I think most of the obstacles that I've encountered with goal setting, particularly in the workplace, are when it's kind of done in a really artificial way. Like you have your annual performance review where it talks about here are the things you did in the last 12 months. Now, what do you want to do in the next 12 months? So it's like, well, I only have a certain amount of control of what the company is even going to do in the next 12 months. I don't know. what the company. I can't look forward 12 months and say, well, the company will necessarily need me to be this kind of person in 12 months. I think it needs to be done more informally than that and focus more on what do you as a tester and as an individual think can help to forward your own career. Yes, absolutely. And don't tell my boss, but I often will write my goals at review time so I can look back and see what I actually did and say that those were my goals. Yeah. There's a career tip. <laughs> that is the kind of manager I, I like to have and, and the kind that I aspire to be. <laughs> and a lot of that goal setting involves being very reflective and looking at, you know, what what can you do better? What have you maybe struggled with in the past? You know, possibly, you know, discussing your own failures or your team's failures. And again, that's a difficult thing to do, particularly for a tester who could potentially be made to be held accountable for a, a particularly bad production bug, for example. You know, why didn't you find that? Obviously, this needs to come with a certain amount of humility. You have, There's a certain amount you do have to bear the brunt of it. But how can you come to terms with the fact that you don't know everything? Yeah, I think the longer I work in this industry, the more I have to come face to the face with the fact that I don't know everything or even much of anything. <laughs> and it is hard to not take things personally when a bug turns up in production, sort of like, oh, why didn't I find it? I mean, I will take sort of blame myself personally, even though maybe the rest of the team is fine with it. Uh, so that's sort of, it's a thing that I continually struggle with, sort of this balance between being humble or beating yourself up or contemplating and versus procrastinating. I mean, there's a lot of interesting balancing acts that have to go on there. I think it's a question that I try to pivot when it occurs so that it, the question becomes more, why didn't we have the test that allowed us to catch that bug? You know, so then we can have the conversations about, well, could that have been caught by a unit test? Can we put one in easily? What went wrong with our process that we would, didn't think of doing that before it happened? Right. Oh, taking ownership is important, but I think actually embracing, again, the, the team ownership of quality and, and making that the message can make it an easier pill to swallow. Yes, definitely. Now we're cracking along and we're already onto your fourth song choice. Yes, this is a little different from the rest of the songs. Uh, when I was in school, I played the cello. If I was feeling confident in myself, I'd say I was a classically trained cellist, although uh, I never went much further than a high level of mediocre. But I did eventually get into the Seattle Youth Symphony, which is a very excellent organization. And they play the real symphony works without changing them or dumbing them down or anything like that. And there were very, very good musicians in there. I was in the very back of the section clinging on by my fingernails, but I was there. That's the important thing. And it was a great experience. This piece, uh, David Popper's Requiem for Three Cellos and Piano, is absolutely one of the most beautiful cello pieces that I'm aware of. 
my aspirational goal at one point was to actually play this piece. I'm not sure I'll ever get there because I'm a bit rusty in the cello, but uh, this is uh, something I like to listen to when I'm in a more contemplative mood. That was David Popper's Requiem for Three Cellos and a Piano. So one of the things that you said you wanted to talk about, Amber, was gratitude. And I appreciate the need for gratefulness. What in particular was it that you wanted to discuss on the subject? Well, I think it's important, especially sort of when you take a macro look at the world, that maybe things aren't so great, but then to sort of look at your own life and see the things that are going well and things that are joyful about life. And there's always something that you can look at and think, wow, that's really cool. And thank goodness I was here to see it. Trying to maintain that attitude or return to that attitude as much as possible. For me personally, it's it's really important. One of the things that I've seen growing in popularity in recent years is the idea of gratitude journaling, which is where you record, for example, three, four, five things a day that just you're grateful for. They can be little things like, you know, that person that held the door for me or, or the, the um, my favorite song was on the radio or, or whatever, uh, just as a way of learning to recognize that there's goodness around you. Because particularly, again, as testers, when we are focused on being critical in our day to day business, we, we are trained to spot the problems and actually I've been in situations where my dedication to the job has led me to be overly critical. And it, it actually, that sounds back to my, my degree days. I was, I was a, when I studied journalism, I was a sub editor, which again is the person uh-huh. who goes through the articles and looks for the problems. And while that served me great in help, helping me fall into testing, it, it does tend towards a certain mindset. Yes. It's like in a test interview where they say, okay, test this situation. And you're supposed to just rattle off tests until they tell you to stop. I mean, it's once you get into that mindset, it's easy to keep going, but sometimes it's important to stop and say, Maybe things aren't quite so bad as all that. But it's good to see there's a a growing amount of discussion in the test industry about this sort of subject, and particularly around mental health as well. And people like Jem Hill have been kind of pioneers among the community in actually making people comfortable about talking about this sort of thing. She has a companion podcast called Inner Pod, which is specifically targeted around mental health. And there are more and more talks about this sort of thing at conferences. And I think it's really important that we help people to understand this is a healthy thing to talk about and to open up about. Yes, absolutely. The other thing that I think is uh, really starting to get talked about more and more, which I think is great, is bringing more kindness into our professional lives and our personal lives. I really think that's the bedrock is uh, being kind to people and thinking about people with kindness, thinking about the people you work with with kindness. They're not putting in bugs because they hate you. They're putting in bugs because they're human beings, that sort of thing. Yes. And again, like when we were talking earlier about being critical to people within your team, I think a lot of that is about how you communicate the message. Uh, I remember there was an incident in my team recently where it was a, a perfectly normal everyday incident where 
something had been through code review and had been passed over to me for testing. And I, you know, I picked it up straight away and the whole thing fell over. And I, I thought sarcastically in Slack, just typed the message, what did you even do in the code review? You know, this, this is just, just gets completely broken. What did you even do? You know, with like a question mark, exclamation mark thing is, you know, that I thought communicated that I was joking and it came across in the medium that I provided it as if I was being genuinely, you know, you guys suck. You shouldn't even be working here. And yeah, you have to be very careful, particularly, I mean, for myself working remotely, that that sort of thing can build up and you have to be careful that you're, you're not seen as being, uh, you know, a disruptive influence. Yeah, I actually have a similar anecdote from my work, and it's not not me talking in Slack about other people, but we support a lot of other teams within the company, and so it's very easy. We are providing these services to these other teams, and maybe they don't use them the way that we thought they should be used, or they're not doing things, quote-unquote, right. So it's easy to sort of say, well, those people, they don't know what they're doing, and blah, 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 and when we really should be thinking, okay, how come they weren't doing it right. What could we be doing to communicate how they could be using it better? Or, you know, if, if multiple people are doing the same wrong thing, then that means there's a problem that we could be solving instead of just blaming people about what they're doing. I think that's been the thread that's gone through a lot of this episode is the, the importance of not just empathy, but teamwork, understanding. It's an ever interesting industry to work in for sure. And it's been a pleasure talking to you, Amber. We've got one more song choice to hear from you. Yeah, so my last song choice is 10,000 Maniacs These Are Days, uh, which I really think captures the feeling of joy that you have when you have nice weather after it's been bad weather or when you're expecting something wonderful to happen or you discover something new. Uh, This song puts me in a good mood every time I listen to it. And sometimes that'll be 10 times a day. It's one of those kind of days. That was 10,000 Maniacs, These Are Days, which was Amber Race's final song selection. And the last thing that you get to select on this podcast, Amber, is the choice of the book that you take with you to the desert island, if you could pick one. So the book I chose was uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, The Remains of the Day, which I love this book so much. And it's relatively short and it's a pretty easy read. So I would highly recommend people that haven't read it to read it. It touches on a lot of the same topics we've been talking about, having empathy with the people you're working with, looking at the larger picture of what you're doing with your life and your career. Uh, It's all in there and it's uh, put together very beautifully. And I just think it's a great book. Mm. We've had a lot of excellent book selections so far, but this is the first one that actually I can point to and go, oh, me too. This has had a a massive impact on me. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my school days, we read the book, uh, I think for our our, uh, secondary school level. 
And then I did a media studies course where we studied the the movie version, which had Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson in, which is one of the most British movies of all time. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really British. good. As book to movie adaptations go, it's very faithful. And again, yeah, there's just a, lo- a lot of those topics like Anthony Hopkins, who, who plays the butler in, in the book, uh, talking about uh, how it's important to have a, a quiet dignity. And I think that's something we can all take into our roles on a day-to-day basis. Yes. But maybe not to the extent that he does. No, no, maybe don't bottle it up for 50 years. No, that's <laughs> spoilers. <laughs> well, that has absolutely flown by, Amber. It's been an absolute pleasure. If people want to get hold of you and talk more about the things that you've talked about today, how can they do that? Probably the best way to get in touch with me is through Twitter at Amber Tests. That you can DM me or you can email me at amber.race at outlook.com. Uh, those are probably the two best ways to get a hold of me. Excellent. And we mentioned the upcoming Agile Testing Days. Have you got any other conferences coming up? I know you're going to a, a developer-focused conference in the near future. Yes, uh, I'm doing something new, new for mm-hmm. me anyway. I'm going to be uh, speaking at the first annual Postman conference, PostCon, which is in San Francisco on June 7th. So I'll be speaking there, and I expect that'll be a lot of fun. I'm also participating in Joe Colantonio's Testing Guild, which is going to be later in the month of June. If you sign up for the online guild things that he does, uh, I'm going to be doing that as well. Excellent. I'll put a link to those in the show notes. Uh, Postman is fast becoming a friend of the podcast. <laughs> I think there, haven't, there hasn't been an episode in the last maybe six or seven episodes where Postman hasn't been named at some point. It's certainly a, a tool I use on a day-to-day basis. Uh, other tools are available. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, it's time to say goodbye for another episode. Thank you very much indeed, Amber, for coming on the podcast. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and a lot of fun. Thank you very much for having me on. Excellent. And I'll speak to you all again soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Testers Island Discs is brought to you in association with the Ministry of Testing. Written and produced by Neil Studd. Theme music by Tony Lovich. Follow us on Twitter at Testers Island 